0: Welcome, welcome. This is My Recovery, part of the Much Love Family, where fellow recovering addicts share their stories and insights into their recovery. We are a group with one major commonality. We are all trying to get another day clean, one day at a time, just for today. My name is David, and I am an addict. The guest in this episode is my friend Eric. It is truly an honor to have someone with his amount of clean time impart their wisdom and share their experience. I owe a lot to Eric. He is one of my predecessors that helped me connect with a higher power. I followed his guidance and every morning I hit my knees and said my gratitudes. I didn't have to know exactly what I was saying it to. It was just a practice, an action that started my journey to connecting with a higher power as I understood it. He is a special part of my recovery, and I hope he will be of yours. Please enjoy. Much love. Hello, everybody.
1: I'm an addict, and my name is Eric. And uh, just like, want to chat a little bit about what it was like for me, what happened, and what it's like now, and answer and maybe make some comments about some of the questions I have that some people may be interested in hearing about that uh, are common misconceptions about drug addiction. And uh, in my own particular case, uh, I got clean August the 18th, 1984, which obviously was a long time ago. I was a heroin addict. In between the heroin addiction, I was on methadone for 10 and a half years and never missed a day of that of getting that dose. And um, towards the end of that 10 and a half year period, and I would turn the corner in my car after I got uh, left the clinic, um, I would get this little 10 second buzz and I would think, wow, this is what my whole life has come down to is this little 10 second buzz. And I was pathetic. And um, I blamed everybody for my problems because it was never my fault. And I was good at that. I was good at distracting and turning things around to make you look bad and so forth and so on. And then um, I was taken to my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting, which actually was the 24th of July of 1984, which I believe was a Tuesday. And uh, um, the guy that took me there was in a group therapy I was in and um, that group was mandated by the state of Maryland because I got my second driving while intoxicated in 1983. I got a first one in 1981, and I thought it was okay to drink a couple of beers and eat some quaaludes and then hit the road in my car, and that didn't work out too well. Fortunately, no one was killed, including myself. So, I get to this meeting not knowing what Narcotics Anonymous was about. I remember now that there were some advertisements on late-night TV a couple of times a week about Alcoholics Anonymous and that it's a disease, and I never put the two together because I didn't have a problem with alcohol, except for the two DUIs. So anyway, uh, this guy, Steve, takes me to this meeting. It was in Baltimore at shepherd Pratt hospital in the cafeteria. And he introduced me to a guy named Alan and Alan gave me a hug, which was uncomfortable. And then after Alan and I talked a second, he introduced me to this other guy, Stuart who also gave me a hug and I was uncomfortable. And then he introduced me to this guy, Joe and Joe and I could relate because Joe had a couple of teeth missing. Not that I do, but he had a bandana on and, uh, those coverall jeans and, uh, I could picture him out on the street. The other two I couldn't, but I was wrong about all that anyway. So that was just my, you know, misconception of the people I had met. Now, they talk about sponsorship in recovery and the first first NA hug I got from this guy named Alan was my first sponsor for my first 15 years. And coincidentally, if there are such things, the second hug I got from Stewart became my next sponsor after Allen for the next seven years. And then I had to do some work that I needed to contact a woman in Baltimore who had done the work I needed to do, and she's been my sponsor ever since. And um, we'll get to that maybe. <coughs> Excuse me. So I arrive in this Narcotics Anonymous meeting, And uh, it was in the cafeteria. They had the main meeting in the cafeteria and around the corner, they had a smaller room and that's where they had step studies. I didn't know anything about anything at that meeting. I was just there and I did what everybody else did when they introduced themselves. And there was probably six or seven people that introduced themselves in that first meeting. So the guy in front of me said, he's a drug addict and an alcoholic. And that's what I said. And then I was shaking and I sat back down because I was nervous. And uh it happened to be somebody's name, somebody named Joe P, Joe Perry, not the singer, who was celebrating his first year clean in NA. And the only thing I remember him saying was heroin a few times, and I could relate to that. And in those days, when somebody opened their mouth to share whatever it was, people said, "Keep coming back. So that's what I was told to do. And so that's what I did. I kept coming back. And my sponsor, Alan, who was a school teacher, uh, in July and August would pick me up every day at 12 noon, most every day. And we'd go to a meeting together. And that's how that relationship was formed. And, uh, so that was, this was great. Every meeting I seemed to go to, I'd run into somebody, I run into somebody from the neighborhood who was there. People I used to get high with that found Narcotics Anonymous. And, and, uh, it was a gas, man. It just was like two, three meetings a day, kept me clean every day. Meetings became the most important thing in my life. And uh, I was able to continue, probably for the first six or seven years of my recovery to go to at least two meetings a day. Always a noon meeting and usually a meeting in the evening because all my friends were in Narcotics Anonymous and we'd go get coffee after the meetings or we'd go out to eat or we'd do something. And, uh, this was a, this was a whole new world that I did not think existed because at age 37, when I got clean, I was absolutely a mess. And, uh, I was the poster child for drug addiction. Uh, not to get too graphic, but, uh, my hands were the size of baseball gloves because I ran out of veins two years before I got clean. And so, um, I continue to go to meetings. I continue to recover. I continue to meet people. And uh, there's some questions here on a piece of paper that I've circled that I'll comment on. The first one is, what are some things you found surprisingly challenging to do, clean, or in recovery? Well, um, there's not much that I didn't do. When I first got clean, because it was a whole new world. And after about four or five months, I noticed there were women in the meetings. And, uh, it was challenging not to go out on dates in those days. I like to say that I did all the wrong things just the right way in my early recovery, probably for the first five to seven years, but around 10 months. I got involved with a really beautiful, really beautiful woman that I met at that Tuesday night meeting, and uh, we, we got involved, and uh, we were involved for about four and a half years. We lived together for a time, and then she would continually relapse, and then she'd stay gone for about two or three months, and then somebody would say that they saw her at, at her home group on a Sunday, and I'd run over there. And there she is, there she would be. And I'd stare at her most of the night, and she'd laugh to herself. She wouldn't look at me, but she knew I was looking at her. And then we'd get back together, and that was the cycle. She'd stay clean for a few months. And um, that's where I realized that the drugs are gone, but there seems to be some other problems. And the other problems were I wanted to have a life with her, but the drugs, in case anybody's interested, are always going to come first, no matter who it is. So that was, my, that was the case. And uh, that relationship and how crazy I was trying to get her clean uh, sent me to an inpatient facility in Clearwater, Florida <clears throat> in 1988. I was clean four and a half years at the time. I was going to a therapist, but the therapist said to me one time, maybe the fifth or sixth session that we had, she said, Eric, you can come here for the next 10 years twice a week, but not much is going to happen in your life to change you. I suggest that you seek out one of these two places. One of them was five and a half days up in Pennsylvania. I'm in Baltimore now. The other was in Clearwater. And that was October of 88 or 87 and my insurance uh, didn't clear until March. So I decided to go on my birthday. And, uh, and I got on an airplane and I flew to Tampa and I got picked up and I went to this facility and I got better. I'm not gonna go into what it was like there because nobody would really understand, but they really uh, stressed that people's problems of getting self-esteem was an inside job. And that the key to getting self-esteem was not how much you accumulated on the outside or how beautiful your girlfriend or boyfriend was, but it was about being responsible. That was the whole key to everything, just being responsible. In other words, people that want to have self-esteem have to give it to themselves. It's nice to get a pat on the back, but that doesn't cut it. So anyway, that's what went on in there for the most part. It was called the Center for Conflict Resolution. And uh, there were about 35, to 35 people in there from all over the place dealing with all kinds of addictions and all kinds of sickness. <clears throat> and all of them got better if they stayed. And the one thing they stressed to those of us that were in relationships or were married to other family members, or not family members, but uh, wives, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever, that we would probably go back to that same sick relationship again, but it wouldn't be the same. And that's how it was. It wasn't the same when I got back to Baltimore. And uh, so I was 38, and she was 26 when we got together. And uh, I was 45 when she died from the disease of addiction. She was 33. She didn't die from an overdose. She just shot so much cocaine and diluted and heroin that She blew her heart out, basically, and, and she died from pulmonary hypertension. They gave her six months to two years to live, and I saw her about three months before she died the last time, and she looked amazing, but she couldn't walk 10 feet without, without having to sit down, and that's where the disease took her and many others. So that's what I'm going to talk about there. That That's the answer to the first question that I, that I can give you, and the second question I circled was, how did you find your higher power, and what does it mean to you? Well, they talk about finding a higher power as the most important thing in recovery, whatever recovery you're in. But in Narcotics Anonymous, that's the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. Because without a power greater than yourself, that isn't you, or in this case, it isn't me, problems will arise. And so I struggle with that because uh, that was the second step, you know, coming to believe in a power greater than yourself. And uh, I skipped right to the God of my understanding. I skipped right to the word God. And I went to a religious school and uh, I wanted nothing to do with God because all my conception was, is that it was some old man with a, you know, sat up there in a throne with long white hair and a long white beard. And I want nothing to do with that. So for years, I struggled with What is God? And they used to say, well, substitute the words good orderly direction, or in my case, gift of desperation. That was the acronym. Or great outdoors, whatever. So I liked that, and that worked for a while. And uh, I don't know how long ago this was, probably 10 or 15 years or so ago, I came to the one conclusion that my higher power, the God of my understanding, is my relationship with the unexplainable. And I could talk for hours and hours about the coincidences that have occurred in my life that were profound and some not so profound. But when they occur and I look at them, I say, well, that's the God of my understanding working in my life at this moment in time. And it could be something as simple as driving behind somebody that's going half the speed limit. And all of a sudden, I, sort of, I say to myself, well, I wish they would just go faster or whatever. And, and all of a sudden, they turn left. <laughs> It's that kind of crazy stuff, you know. And so um, that's how I found my higher power. Most importantly, I stayed clean through the whole process. So this other question says, what are some common common misconceptions about addiction and recovery that you've encountered, and how do you address them? Well, uh, I don't really have problems with other people because I've learned that humility is the best place for me to be. And it's always better for me to be the, the the better person. You know what I mean? Always be the higher hierarchy of like, not be a right fighter, as they call it. I don't be. I don't have to be right. I humble myself. It's not the end of the world. I don't have to win the conversation, and I certainly don't have to be disagreeable with somebody, even if we disagree. So I brought those things into my mind and and into my daily life. You know. I always stress that just be the bigger person and you're right. There's no point in argue. I'm not going to argue with somebody who wants to argue with me about religion. and I'm certainly not going to argue with anybody that wants to talk about uh, politics. <laughs> Those are two subjects I don't get into with anybody at all ever. Just gets too aggravating. So I'm not going to change somebody's mind and they're not going to change mind. And so um, as far as addiction and recovery, um, and how do I address these misconceptions? Um, there are various stages of addiction that I found over my time clean. And that is some people are sicker than others. And, uh, I like to work with those people, you know? Um, uh, so those are usually some old farts that, uh, managed to, to live through their addiction and make it to the rooms, what we commonly call newcomers. And I like to work with them. And uh <clears throat> and I like to work with them by working the steps, the 12 steps of narcotics anonymous and the traditions. But more importantly than that, in the beginning, I like to stress getting out of all the drama and chaos that they bring into their recovery and early recovery, which means uh, let's straighten out your taxes, let's straighten out your driver's license, and so forth and so on. And uh once we accomplish that, then we can move on to some other things. And uh, so um, I, might, I might not be a banker for somebody and hold their money, uh, but I like to like, uh, apply the principles I've learned to what it is outside of the meetings. When I leave the meeting, I like to apply what I've learned over the years in the real world. And um, that's how it works for me. And there's this other question. What was the biggest hurdle I had to overcome in my journey, and how did I do it? And the biggest hurdles I've had to overcome were loss. I lost my mother um, a little over 13 years ago, and I lost my father about 22 years ago. We didn't have a great relationship, so I didn't even know he was sick. If that helps. And uh, and then I lost Karen, and that was uh, that was like uh, in nineteen ninety one. I guess she died ninety two, and a lot of friends, because the disease is more powerful than I am, and and anybody else and all it seems to want to do is kill us and continue thinks it can continue to live if that makes any sense to anybody so i mean i think loss is probably the the hardest thing to deal with in life it certainly is for me in recovery and um and then there's this last question Uh, it says can i share a moment when i had a breakthrough a realization that helped me stay on the path of recovery uh Well, I didn't have any one particular breakthrough. I had what they call spiritual awakenings. And the first one came when I had 42 days clean and I was sitting in an NA meeting. Let me back up. The first one came when I was 33 days clean. I remember it clearly now. And I was sitting in an NA meeting at 12 noon. There was probably 8, 10 people there. And I raised my hand to share. And I said when I shared, you know, if it was up to me, I'd be shooting dope right now. And then I shut up and I thought, what the fuck did I just say? Like, who would it be up to if it wasn't up to me? And then I realized that you people, the people in the meetings, were much power, they were power greater than I was. And and then it started to sink in that the people in the meetings were uh, the God of my understanding that the God worked through people, particularly the people in the meetings. And I started to recover and take another leap of faith with that. But I would go to the new meeting every day, and I would sit there, and sometimes the person that shared was so graphic that it would start my stomach turning. And, uh, And this one day, I had that anxiety going on in my gut. And I remember I looked at the clock, and it was like 1222, and that anxiety just had stopped. And I kept waiting for it to start again, and it never started again. And I got home, and I called Alan, and I told him what had happened. And he said, don't analyze, just utilize. Don't think about it. Because I used to think if I had to do two good days in a row that the next day was going to be really cruddy, and the day after that. And so that was like my first spiritual awakening. Now, that was a topic a long time ago in meetings. Uh And people would share their spiritual awakenings. And I've had a lot along the way, and they usually have to do with coincidences. And uh, I have many, many, many stories, none of which would be appropriate at this time. But um, I guess if I were to tell a story about coincidences... It would be this one time that I had a dream about somebody that I hadn't seen in 20 years, maybe longer. And uh, I was waiting for a bus that particular day. And when the doors opened up, this guy, John, that I hadn't seen in 21 years, stepped off the bus. And I thought, that's really crazy. Now, That stuff has happened to me, not quite as profound, but it's happened to me many times in my recovery. And uh, it just lets me know that there is a power out there that's taking care of me and lots of other people, if I let it. Big words, if if I let it. And um, so... That's the that's the coincidence that comes to mind. I've had other ones like that where I think about somebody's name will just and you know their face will pop into my head and, and I see him that day uh, as I get older I, you know I, I forget certain people's names and I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm thinking you know what is this cat's name man I've known this guy for 20 years and I can't think of his name and someone will call on him and they'll say his name or he'll raise his hand you know and they will make an announcement at the meeting. And those are coincidences to me. It's really stupid, but it's that simple. It's a very simple program and I I don't want to complicate it. Um, So it's all about being responsible. It's all about uh, to regain self-esteem and uh, the rest of it is all I care about is what you want to do about your problem and how can I help you? And with that, I'm going to end what I had to say, so thanks for listening.